Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Fringe Characters by James Carey The Edinburgh Fringe Festival is probably the greatest arts festival on earth, and it's getting bigger every year. In 2001, 666 groups presented 1,462 shows in 176 venues, selling 873,887 tickets between them. By 2017, everything had doubled. 3,398 shows at 300 venues sold 2.9 million tickets. Even COVID-19 couldn't burst the balloon. This year, the Fringe is as big as ever. How does it keep on growing? I have a controversial theory based on my experience as a Fringe performer. And it's not about the insatiable demand for tickets, but the strange supply. Let me explain. Every year, Tourists arrive in Scotland's capital to sample an exciting buffet of comic and dramatic treats alongside a smorgasbord of bizarre spectacles. It's a hit-and-miss affair, for sure, but most punters know that most shows are, well, a punt. The Fringe programme contains comedians, theatre troupes, performers you've never heard of performing something that's rather hard to get one's head around until one's seen it and sometimes not even then. Average fringe-goer might well take in half a dozen shows over a long weekend. One might be a favourite Mock the Week comedian off the telly in a venue that seats 800. But the rest are small, intimate, dank spaces that may be uncomfortably packed or embarrassingly empty. Again, that's all part of the experience. Add some beers, some unfamiliar street food and just enough sleep to function, and that's the Edinburgh Fringe experience. Except it's only one side of it, oh fringe-goer. As you jump on a train from Waverley Station and return to the office with a sore head and some good stories about some weird outre theatre that really didn't work, spare thought for the thousands of performers that you leave behind. There are the ones trapped in that outre fringe show which runs until the end of the month, doomed to perform the same deeply flawed show about 27 times, like Sisyphus rolling his rock up the hillside. If you're a fringe performer, and I speak from the experience of having performed or produced various shows at the Edinburgh Fringe between 1996 and 2017, things are rather different. The Edinburgh Fringe is not a talent show where the obscure but gifted performer finds an audience, acclaim and fame through sheer hard work and pluck. That is the experience of a few, but for most, the Fringe is more like running a marathon in the rain wearing an amusing but extremely absorbent fancy dress costume. It is a test of grim endurance. It's not just an endurance of physical stamina, although the odd hours, the alcohol and the ill-advised street food all take their toll. Ultimately, the Edinburgh Fringe is a month-long examination of character. 
you will experience emotions and feel frustrations that only happen in this annual cauldron of dysfunctional ambition. It's not about the show. The 60 minutes spent on stage in front of the barely adequate lights is the straightforward part of your day. The show, even if it's improvised, is broadly the same each time. How you spend the other 23 hours is the real test. You might think that the task is simple. Every day you leap out of bed, eat a hearty Scottish breakfast, grab your stack of flyers and go out and spread the word about your show. No? Here's the problem. Within a week or so, you've worked out that your show is not what you thought it was. What seemed to be an hilarious off-the-wall idea back in February now seems like the joke has worn a bit thin technically didn't quite work in the first place. You are not in contention for an award. Your show doesn't have any buzz. Your temporary friends console you that you're being penalised by doing something different or you're in the wrong slot or the wrong venue or getting the wrong audience when you get an audience. The expensive prop from your show that is carried around the streets to sell tickets now feels like an albatross around your neck. Your costume hasn't been washed for over a week and probably never will be. And every punter you speak to has already booked to see the hot new show that has captured the zeitgeist. Oh, and the Cambridge Footlights. And that comedian who's on Mock the Week. Or, or was it live at the Apollo? And then they're going out to dinner with some friends. At that moment, you remember how much this is costing you. The largest amount of your budget going to your temporary landlady who is currently sunning herself in Malaga, having rented you her broom cupboard. And then it starts to rain. It appears that I have not made my case for the continual expansion of the Edinburgh Fringe. I have demonstrated a thousand reasons to abandon old Riki and never to return. But let me tell you about what happens next to our hapless performer. In the short term... The embittered, disenchanted performer may give in to the seven deadly sins, justifying all kinds of self-destructive and narcissistic behaviour. Terrible food, too much booze and ill-advised liaisons. But this is Edinburgh, where everything is multiplied many times over. It's not the seven deadly sins, but 77 deadly sins. In fact, wait... The 77 Deadly Sins. Is that an idea for a show next year? You start to design the flyer in your head. In the midst of your frustration and exhaustion, you're already planning your return next year. Here's where the wisdom of the ages kicks in, which explains my theory. In the Bible, there is a wonderful proverb from King Solomon which runs thus. As a dog returns to its vomit... So fools repeat their folly. There's something about the Edinburgh Fringe that keeps performers coming back year after year. Next year, it'll be different. And it isn't. But maybe the year after it will be. And so every year, alongside the newcomers, the old-timers return with a new show. And the Fringe grows a little bit more every year. Actually, the first half of that proverb sounds like a great title for a fringe play. And after my years of experience, well, maybe it's time I went back. 
Why do we feel so lonely? By Graham Tomlin. These days, I can't seem to avoid the spectre of loneliness. Bob Geldof recently described Sinead O'Connor as full of a terrible loneliness in the weeks before she died. Elon Musk, who owns Twitter, one of the world's greatest social networks, was recently described as cutting a lonely figure. Even more widely, over a quarter of all Londoners say they often or always feel lonely. And that in a city where you can't get away from people, all eight million of them. Loneliness is an epidemic these days. In the UK, we even have a Minister for Loneliness and a Department of Government offering Loneliness Engagement Fund grants for groups coming up with good ideas to combat it. Loneliness, as Roger Bretherton writes, causes psychological and social damage and is one of the main threats to mental health in contemporary life. I would hazard a guess that if you're listening to this, there may be times you feel isolated and would love to have a greater sense of community where you live or richer friendships. If you don't, then count yourself fortunate. During the pandemic, looking around for books that would shed some light on that strange experience of isolation, as so many did, I reread two novels. Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe, published in 1719, and Joseph Conrad's Nostromo, published in 1904. In both stories, people get stranded on deserted islands. Somehow lockdown didn't seem that different. Everyone knows the story of Robinson Crusoe. You might have thought that being the sole survivor of a shipwreck alone on a remote island would lead to a crisis of loneliness and self-pity. Well, he does have moments when he reflects on the possibility that he might die in that desolate place and remarks how... The tears would run plentifully down my face when I made these reflections. But self-pity doesn't last long. He goes on to ask himself the question of why he alone was saved out of all the crew of the ship that foundered. He sees some kind of providential design in this, that he had been saved not just by chance, but for some wider purpose, which gives him a sense of comfort. In fact, the novel is the tale of a kind of spiritual awakening as he gradually sees in his story something of the hand of God mysteriously guiding and preserving him through his trials. Seeing this enigmatic hand directing his affairs and discerning some kind of purpose in his isolation, Crusoe sets about the tasks of building a kind of small civilization on his island, constructing increasingly sophisticated shelters, planting crops, capturing and taming animals, mapping the island, until his final rescue. He is alone, until Man Friday appears, of course, but strangely not alone. In Conrad's Nostromo, turns out very different. This is a story of attempts to protect a hoard of silver from revolutionaries in the troubled and fictional South American Republic of Costaguana. In the course of trying to hide the treasure alongside Nostromo, the main figure in the story, the politically ambitious and romantic journalist Martin de Coud, also finds himself stranded on a desert island, albeit with the load of valuable silver for company. His experience, however, is totally different. 
He has no such belief in providence, and so for him, the isolation bears more heavily. Solitude appeared like a great void, and the silence of the gulf like a tense, thin cord, to which he hung, suspended by both hands, without fear, without surprise, without any sort of emotion whatsoever. Unable to bear the isolation, the aimlessness of his life on the island, and the apparent failure of his plans and projects, he fills his pockets with silver ingots from the treasure, rows in a small dinghy a short way out from the shore, shoots himself with a revolver and falls overboard, sinking slowly to the bottom of the sea. And so, as Conrad describes it, in a cold yet superb turn of phrase, the brilliant Don Martin disappeared without a trace, swallowed up in the immense indifference of things. Even though they both faced isolation and loneliness, the fates of these two characters are very different. One is the story of spiritual growth, learning, meaningful activity and ultimate rescue. The other is a tragedy of lost hope and potential. It touches the heart, yet remains a tragedy. Of course, both are novels, not historical episodes, yet the two books, separated by nearly 200 years, operate in very different frameworks. The first operates in a world which assumes a kind of providential ordering of things. The working of a divine hand of providence is, as Crusoe and presumably Defoe realises, hard to discern and difficult to distinguish in any one moment, and so leads many to doubt it is there at all. Belief in providence has always been a choice, an act of faith rather than a scientifically proved theory. And yet the story is framed within the overall belief that in the strange twists and turns of life, there is a deeper divine order that leads towards a distinct purpose of good, and which makes human activity directed towards that purpose meaningful. The other story has lost that sense of divine order, and is left only with the immense indifference of things. This is a world in which there is nothing beyond what we can see and feel, no objective purpose, direction or goal, other than that dreamed up by us. Human activity, in this case the search for wealth and riches, seems strangely pointless. All that is left is human love and relationship, and when that becomes impossible due to enforced loneliness, there seems little point left to life. Richard Dawkins famously wrote, The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. For the moment, I'll leave to one side the question of whether the universe does point in that direction. But either way, if we tell ourselves that story, as we have so often been doing for the last couple of centuries, is it surprising? that we often feel dreadfully alone. Is it surprising that when we tell ourselves that we are alone in the cosmos, that there is no one there to hear our cries or heartfelt longings, that the aching hole in the universe finds its way into our own hearts? It doesn't take much imagination to see that the immense indifference of things leaves a hollowness in the heart of life and the pit of the stomach. 
Such a deeper cosmic loneliness might explain why we can still feel alone, even in a city, even in a crowd, or even sometimes among our friends. It helps us see our loneliness not just as a tragedy, but as a pointer towards our need for a greater sense of connection than any human being could give. In Matthew's Gospel, the very last sentence depicts Jesus saying to his perplexed but bewildered disciples, scarcely daring to believe that he is actually risen from the dead, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This simple promise is one that has held and sustained Christians for generations in prison cells, through dangerous voyages, through purges, in times of persecution, misunderstanding and sickness, and yes, times of loneliness in modern Western societies. Of course we need a sense of belonging and the company of others, as we are made for that. But underneath it, we need a deeper connection, a bond with something or someone at the very heart of things. Such a promise doesn't remove loneliness, but it makes it bearable, even meaningful. Dear Greta Gerwig, How Your Netflix Narnia Can Be a Roaring Success by John Kurt Dear Greta, Congratulations on being appointed screenwriter and director for Netflix's The Chronicles of Narnia. I've really enjoyed your films Lady Bird and Little Women, and I'm seeing Barbie this week as I've been away. It's great to see a writer-director of your standing getting this crucial job. I know you feel daunted to take on this job, and I'm writing to share five thoughts on what you need to bear in mind to make this series a success. I cannot claim to know anything about producing films or TV series, but I do know about Narnia. Like millions of others, the books have been very significant to me. I read them first when I was a teenager, but I've continued to reread them into adulthood. They've given me a reference point for some of the deepest questions about purpose, faith, life and death. Disney slash Walden Media's Narnia series faltered after three films. The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe in 2005 was a huge box office hit. It was followed by less successful adaptations of Prince Caspian in 2008 and The Voyage of the Dawn Treader in 2010. I thought all three films had many good qualities, but the abandonment of the project, less than halfway through, shows the challenges of bringing Narnia to visual life. So, with all this in mind, these are my five tips for how to create a great Narnia series. Number one, understand the thinking behind the books. The author, C.S. Lewis, was both an academic expert in medieval literature and a high-profile Christian author and communicator. He was a brilliant but complex man. Understanding him his beliefs and his aims in writing Narnia is fundamental. The two best books on this subject are Michael Ward's Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens in the Imagination of C.S. Lewis, and Rowan Williams's The Lion's World, A Journey into the Heart of Narnia. Ward's book is a highly academic dissection of the hidden key which Lewis implanted within each book, 
It was subsequently published in an abridged and more accessible version as the Narnia Code. The mishmash of themes and diverse myths and legends in Narnia has puzzled and frustrated academic readers for decades. It was one reason why his friend J.R.R. Tolkien disliked the book so much. But Board argues that the coherence and distinct atmosphere of each book comes from each being based on a different planet from the medieval cosmos. It is a thesis which has won almost unanimous affirmation. Williams's book is very different. It's a short but deep reflection on the theology that Lewis was conveying through the Narnia tales. His opening chapter discusses the point of Narnia, and he uses Shakespeare, Dostoevsky and Augustine to explore the ideas in the stories. He also assesses and responds to the criticism that the books have faced. Number two, recreate the distinct atmosphere of each book. No other books have given me such a vivid experience of going into another world as the Narnia books have. I now realise this is because of the most fundamental yet intangible strength of the books. The atmosphere, mood or, or tone that Lewis creates. As Ward writes, quoting Lewis, Lovers of romances go back and back to such stories in the same way that we go back to a fruit for its taste, to region for its whole atmosphere, to Donegal for its Donegalality, and London for its Londonness. Lewis was fascinated by literature, which drew the reader into enjoyment of a story by indwelling it, seeing through it rather than at it. Ward coins the term Donegality, to describe this hidden element which establishes an intrinsic quality. The inner meaning of a romance cannot be flagged up by the author without altering its true nature. It has to remain hidden, woven into the warp and woof of the story. The challenge for Netflix is that each Narnia book has a distinct donegality, based on the ancient themes and characteristics associated with the Seven Planets. This makes them very different to the Harry Potter books, which have a more uniform feel and consistency. Capturing the distinctive essence of each book will be vital to recreate the atmosphere that Lewis aimed for. Number three, embrace Narnia's spirituality. All adaptations of Narnia have to grapple with how they will handle the clear spiritual themes within the books. Faith makes corporations nervous, but theological due diligence will be a key part of the creative and strategic discussions. I would advise Netflix to be bold and as true to Lewis's thinking as possible. In its 1980s, the BBC airbrushed spirituality out, and this was one factor which made it a poor adaptation. In contrast, Disney were braver in their films, as one newspaper wrote after the box office success of the first film, Disney finds a way to worship both God and Mammon. However, Disney never got to attempt some of the most theologically challenging scenes in the series. Narnia's creation in The Magician's Nephew and its apocalypse and depictions of heavenly recreation in The Last Battle will be immensely difficult to convey on screen. These scenes will not work without confidence and clarity about what Lewis was trying to get across. 
Rather than seeing them simplistically as allegories of Christian faith, it is best to see the stories as deeply infused with spiritual meaning. Rowan Williams answers the question, what is the point of Narnia? By saying that Lewis is doing nothing less than trying to recreate for the reader what it is like to encounter God. He is trying to rinse out what is stale in our thinking about Christianity, which is almost everything. But this does not mean being preachy. Williams makes the point that there is no church in Narnia, no religion even. Instead, the spirituality is embedded within the non-religious action. The bravery, the treachery, sibling tension, bullying, reconciliation and forgiveness, which are jam-packed into the stories. Spiritual truth is embedded and woven within each story. Number four, get the central character right. The character of Aslan stands right at the heart of these books. He is the only character who features in all seven books in the series. He sings the world into existence and presides over its end. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega of the whole story. Aslan is very obviously an authority figure, but Lewis's achievement is to craft a character who is both immensely powerful and enduringly attractive. And the key to this is the subversive nature of his authority. In an age where there is so much questioning of structural inequality and systematic injustice, this is an aspect which Netflix should emphasise. Rome Williams draws this out with great insight. In Narnia, evil is cast as the ultimate force of reaction. We are invited to see ourselves as living under occupation and summoned to join a resistance movement. Aslan's wildness, his animality, represents the unpredictable world of grace, which opposes the ordered state of sin, of which the White Witch, King Miraz, or, most deeply, the prisons we build for ourselves. Williams writes, Transcendence is the wildness of joy, and the truth of God becomes a revolution against what we have made of ourselves. This is why Aslan's victories lead to riotous partying. As Williams points out, this is an explosion of liberating festivity, which, uncomfortably for some Christian readers, includes pagan revelry. At the end of Prince Caspian, both the god Bacchus and a drunken Silenus make appearances to celebrate the liberation Aslan brings. Aslan is the focus of hope, not because he saves souls, but because he is the liberator of people and the whole of creation. Getting Aslan right will be a huge part of getting Narnia right. Number five. Interpret it for a new audience. The Narnia books have faced criticism from authors such as Philip Pullman and J.K. Rowling. When Disney released the first film, Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee wrote an article titled Narnia represents everything that is most hateful about religion. Rome Williams engages head-on with the accusation that the books have overtones of racism and sexism and that they glorify violence. Whilst allowing for the fact that Lewis was an author of his time, accepts the discomfort that modern readers will feel, for example, in how the dark-skinned calamines are presented. 
He also discusses one of the saddest parts of the stories, that former hero Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia by the end of the series. Williams fairly defends this plotline from those who claim it is evidence of Lewis's misogyny. More obviously, the old-fashioned dialogue of the children, golly gosh, by gum, you're a beast, etc., is a turn-off for modern audiences. The Disney films modified this well and used the backdrop of the Second World War at the start of each of the films to provide a more gritty context than conveyed in the books. If you hold fast to the core of the books, see points one to four, then stylistic changes and wise handling of aspects which are uncomfortable for today's audience will enhance the series. All stories need reinterpreting for a new audience. The Great Story Narnia is a great story, but a key reason for its enduring popularity is because it reflects something of the great story of which we are all a part. As Lewis puts it himself in the conclusion of the final book, Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I wish you all the best with the production of the series, and I look forward to seeing the result. Thanks. John Kurt, Narnia fan, South London, aged 51. P.S. You might be interested in the talk I gave on The Magician's Nephew, my favourite Narnia book. This article was first published on John Kurt's Grace and Truth blog in August 2023. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, help others to discover it. Leave a review and rate us wherever you get seen and unseen allowed. Help others discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than they might ever have imagined.